I think about innovation. That's, that's really my focus. And a lot of times people, when they say they're innovative, they're just trying everything and they, they become good at nothing. Welcome to the Optimalist Podcast, where we have set out to examine the higher order capabilities that we need to build an optimal future with AI. I'm Sarah, your host through this exploration of the elements of human flourishing. So let's figure out together how we cultivate them. This week, I am incredibly lucky to have George Kuros on the show. I'm sure many of you listening are at least minimally familiar with George's work, especially if you know us from Twitter. George is currently an innovative teaching, learning, and leadership consultant and speaker, and the author of The Innovator's Mindset and Innovate Inside the Box. He is also co-owner of Impress Books. He has worked at all school levels from K-12 as a teacher, technology facilitator, and school and district administrator, and he's currently an adjunct instructor with the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. Among his beliefs is that creating a collaborative environment with all stakeholders will help to ensure that we meet the best needs of all children. Today, George and I talk about the past, present, and future, if we can even call it that, of innovation itself. What does innovation actually mean, and does the way we innovate have to change now? All of this and more on today's all-new Optimalist. You and I were talking earlier is really about innovation, right? And what that means, what that looks like. And I think a lot of people, when they look at innovation, they think of it synonymous with the term technology. So you have all these new technologies, you know, artificial intelligence, all these things that are coming our way. And I actually will challenge people with this idea that, you know, technology, especially in the classroom, doesn't necessarily make us innovative. In fact, it can actually make things worse. And I'll I'll give you an example of this, right? I'm sure from your teaching experience, you know what a Scantron is and probably everyone that's listening Mm -hmm. knows what it is. And if you look at a Scantron, it's often accelerated bad practice that it's, it's us actually saying, how can we make our jobs easier? But it doesn't really deepen learning for our kids. It's really just about, and the, the example I always use is when I was a high school teacher, uh, I, I, I actually often, basically, we got a Scantron in our school, and the second I got it, I put everything multiple choice, everything, because this is going to make my life so much easier, but it, but it really mm-hmm. didn't do anything to improve learning in my classroom. And so really kind of stepping back, and what does innovation actually mean? Well, it's just doing new and better things. And part of it is how do we adapt and deal with change? How do we actually take advantage of change? So that's always something I'm kind of looking at because I think that when we think about innovation, it's we look at things like, oh, things have changed so significantly over time. So what does innovation mean? Well, innovation actually kind of means the same thing 10 years ago as it does today. How do we do new and better things? How do we actually take advantage of change, not just deal with it when you looked at people dealing with COVID, it was this thing that was thrust upon people and they didn't know what to do because we're often not comfortable with change where some people, they saw, they saw different opportunities. They saw things of doing, and it's not to, it's not to negate that. Obviously there's horrible things that happen. People dealt with very horrible situations, but there's a lot of things that you can take from that time and say, okay, what did I learn from that time? How did it make me grow? How did it make me better? How do I actually utilize this stuff to make me move forward? And so you're looking at a lot of experience in school. Kids are coming back to school with a totally different experience of how they see learning, how they see opportunity. 
But are we just trying to fit them into the 2019 version of school? Or are we saying, hey, in 2023, um, what did we learn over the past few years? How do we actually really improve opportunities for learning for our kids because of what we just experienced? Or are we just trying to go back so hard to what it was before, which wasn't, to be honest, you great. Like a lot of teachers weren't happy in 2019 because weirdly enough, we went away and not, not, be, not any teacher individually, but schools often push people away from what their original intentions were when they became a teacher in the first mm-hmm. place, right? We want to really inspire kids. We want them to look at the world and not just, I, I think a lot of times we say like, how do we, how do we actually get kids prepared for the real world? And that's never been my focus. It's actually, how do we get kids mm-hmm. to be in a situation where they make the real world better? And that's a very different way of thinking because it's it's actually teaching them how to, you know, push forward to continuously improve their lives and the lives of others. So that that's really, you know, that's something that always drives me. And it's funny because I think about innovation. That's That's really my focus. And a lot of times people, when they say they're innovative, they're just trying everything. And they they become good at nothing, right? It's just the latest fact. Yeah. And and they you know and, and a lot of people start trend chasing things like this. Like what's new? What's what's the hot thing? And schools do this all the time. And then they burn people out because they're always trying to do the new thing, but they haven't really got good at the old thing yet. Do we place the word innovation on things that are just new, almost? Well, yeah. I think I think we just say you know like mm-hmm. when we look at innovation, we're like, how are we using this? How are we doing this? Right? And it's we just synonymously replace it, but it's really about a way of thinking. How do we do new and better things? It's, it's simply it. The, my whole work has been to not only get people to embrace it, but to already understand how they've been doing it. So you you take a teacher who's you know grade one teacher who uses no technology, and they hear the word innovation, they don't see themselves in that space. But then I talked to them and I had a really good conversation with a, a teacher recently. And she asked the question, how am I already innovative? And I, I just thought it was a really powerful question. Mm-hmm. And I said, have you ever had a kid who struggled with reading in your class? She's like, of course. I said, okay, so you probably learned a bunch of things in college, learned a bunch of things in professional learning. And none of those things worked. Did you just say, well, I guess this kid's never reading again. Like that's never going to happen. Or did you take what you knew and actually maybe understand who the kid is and then actually modified it and changed some things to help the kid. And then the kid was successful. She's like, of course. And I said, well, that's how you're innovative. It's like, you know, sometimes it's just taking what you know and is deemed as the, the, the practice and realizing it doesn't work for the person right in front of you, but just switching some things up, changing some things to help the people you serve. And really, when you think about innovation, it's really having empathy to understand the experience of others to actually help them improve their situation, help, you know, to, to better assist them. So I, I think it's not, like I said, innovation for me is more about depth than it is about new. It's more of a transformation, right? Committing to being able to transform, even if it's something like the situation example that you were just explaining, it doesn't have the word transformation is like a big right. word. And people think of like complete turnarounds or co- making something completely different, but it can be just changing small, small things or helping one person, helping one person to actually see something differently um, or to change the way they're behaving or something like that. It could be iteration or invention. And so it can be both of those things. And I'll give you an right. example. So if I, you know, if anyone listening to this right now, if I, if we said to them, Hey, for listening, you're going to get a new iPhone. A lot of people would be excited, right? So of course mm-hmm. they'd be excited. But if I said, I didn't say which version, 
So it's not the 15. It could be the first one, right? And if, you, if right. people, the first one's like a brick now. It's one of the most useless things compared to what we have now. But at the time, that brand new thing that never existed before was totally innovative. So that was a transformational mm-hmm. thing. But, you know, now people are complaining that the 15 isn't so much better than the 14, right? But, you know, there is ways that it's better, whether it's the camera, whether it's speed, things like that. So that's the iteration. So there, there's when you look at just the iPhone and the process of it, there you can see how subjective innovation is at different times based on what we've already experienced. So it can be that beginning, that transformation. We have this thing that we've never used before that really defined a lot of things, but it can eventually also be that iteration of like, how, how did we actually take what we had before and then made it way better? So I, I don't think it's an, an either or it's both, but you got to kind of look at things on, on, on different spectrum because nobody wants the iPhone one right now, right? Nobody wants that. One. Right. Even though when it came out, it was amazing. That's a great example too, because it's just because something is new, mm-hmm. like what you're describing, something is new to us and it, and it hasn't existed before does not mean it's a game changer. Right. Well, then the iPhone was, but the Zune wasn't. Yes. Right. Yes. I don't know if you know what the Zune, right? <laughs> I do. That wow, that just like exactly. sends a weird but, ping. But you haven't thought of the Zune for for years, right? No. The Zune was the thing. Like no, and nobody is like, oh, this Zune is changing everything. And most people listening to this right now are googling what is a Zune. Like they have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so like, not not everything that's new makes things better. I, I remember somebody that I was dating at the time had one Zoom. and lent it to me and I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, they were like, oh, I put a bunch of songs on here for you. <laughs> and, pro- and that's, you know, that's probably why you broke up with them, right? Uh, I'm just looking kidding? at it like this. Are you kidding me? Why would you give me a dude? And that, was, that was the end. Of the- and that's why they were horribly the dating. Yeah. Swipe left. <laughs> <laughs> So I kind of wanted to stick on that idea for a minute because now you made me um, the Zoom? think about a few things. About the Zoom. Oh, yeah, on the Zoom. This is now called the Zoom cast <laughs> where we bring up weird stuff that no one remembers um, and think about how it maybe could have been innovative but isn't. <laughs> well, no, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a little bit about some stuff that we were saying before we started recording, but sticking on the innovation line for a second, uh, you mentioned before this idea that really innovation, like the definition of it and, and, and what it is and how we, and how we think about it hasn't changed. You said in 10 years or so. Well, hopefully true. Well, right? hopefully, hopefully. hopefully, right. But for like I said, okay. people, it's just, it's just a constantly moving target and how we even see it. And, and uh, like full disclosure, I think that sometimes in education, we're notoriously for just saying words, but not really saying what they mean. Yeah. Right. We just say the stuff. And we yeah. say the thing. Well, that's actually part of what I was going to bring up. Yeah, it, I was thinking about this before when you were giving those examples is like sometimes it, it's almost like the word engagement, right? We place that word on something and we use it every day constantly. Right. And um, we could even say like, oh, my friend, you know, the teacher next door to me is so innovative. And what does that mean after a while? Are they really innovative or you, or do they just do something one time that was really great? And now you've just keep saying that over and over like it's the same. We do this all the time. And so I'm thinking about that. And now the present moment that we're in, and I was mentioning this to you a little bit about the work that we're doing and trying to help people with their adaptability to things like artificial intelligence and being, and I hate saying the word ready, but really being, um, I guess, cognizant and aware of the fact that it's never going to stop changing. And so if we stick with the idea 
maybe that innovation as at the core is not going to change like the way we think about it. Um, and when we project five, three, five, ten years from now, maybe we could think, does it, does it change then? Or maybe the better question is how, like, does the way we approach it change because we have this like assistant now that can almost innovate better? Or is I, is AI innovating or just doing our lower order thinking? And we have to, we have to create even higher order thinking skills in school. Yeah. Like I, th I think it depends on, so a lot of times people, and because my work is very focused on the notion of innovation, a question I'm asked all the time is like, what do you see happening five, 10 years from now, right? In education. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, because my answer, if you ask me this on a podcast 2015, and you ask me this podcast today in 2023, and you ask me 10 years from now, my answer will never change. I have no clue, right. and neither do you. Right. And, I know. No, we don't. And, and, and that's what people always play these games. Like they, you know, nobody saw like iPads or Chromebooks everywhere in classrooms. Nobody mm -hmm. predicted the pandemic. You know, artificial intelligence, we heard about it, but then all of a sudden it was just everywhere. And it's like the conversation. And so I think that it's basically having the ability to adapt to whatever is in front of you and utilizing this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there's basically a lot of times when we see something like artificial intelligence and, you know, chat GPT, you know, was everywhere in December, 2022. And then by January, 2023, it was blocked everywhere. Right. 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 It was all over the place. Uh, I know, I know you're from, or, or you were in Long Island area. Mm -hmm. uh, there's yep, some that's schools that I, you know, know of in that area that basically mm -hmm. blocked immediately as soon as it was blocked. Right. I'm sure. And, yeah. And it's very, it was very focused on, we want to keep school the way it is, right? We want to keep school the way it is and pretend because a lot of times what we do in school is help kids really get good at school, but not necessarily learning. And mm -hmm. it's almost like separating the two. And I think a lot of times when you're, when you're looking at this, my, my, my question, you know, or my focus is, we often are jumping straight to the teaching without doing the learning ourselves. So I, I wrote a, a blog post on this and uh, it is basically saying like, Hey, what's the first thing we should be talking about? Like, what's the, what's the negative of this? Like what, what's the bad stuff that comes with this new technology that comes in our way. Right. Okay. So let's talk about that. Now let's talk about what's the possibilities. Like what's the really good things. All right. So that we start, you know, and it's very intentionally getting, you know, getting the negative stuff out of the way, like addressing it, but then mm -hmm. kind of looking for a pathway forward. And then it's asking the question, okay, how do I actually utilize this in my own life? And like, what are some of the ways? So for example, right now I'm training for a marathon. Instead of like trying to find the best marathon training plan, going through paywalls, doing this, I just had ChatGPT make a marathon plan for me, you know, mm. basically make the schedule, go through the process, utilize this. And then, cause I'm Canadian, we just moved to the US. I said, hey, change miles to kilometers because I don't have that measure. On my <laughs> right and so then it made it. And, and, and it's weird because that when I went through that process, it was, it was kind of a light bulb moment that Google is too slow. Like that, that's where we've got where Google, oh, Google was too slow. Like it was actually going to be way more of a process than the, the using chat GPT. Right. So then the progression from there is when you start seeing value in your everyday life. Okay. So how does this actually improve? the way that I teach or what we're doing in our classrooms. So you're, you know, a lot of schools develop their own curriculums. How could I actually use something like chat GPT to help me design that? And the, the best analogy, there's a, a gentleman I saw his YouTube channel is uh, it's minority mindset. 
And he talks a lot about financial businesses. He was talking about the impact on a, on the economy and the, the way he defined it, um, the way he looked at ChatGPT, he said it was like a second brain, right? So mm-hmm. like use, utilize a second brain. It's not meant to replace you, but it can really enhance some of the stuff you're doing and, you know, get some of the legwork down of what you're doing. So yeah, you might have it say like, Hey, build me a curriculum with this. And it depends on the types of questions you ask. But you're not going to go with that exactly as it is. You're going to do some right. quantifying because, you know, you have to know your students. And then after going through that, like, what are the positive negatives? How does this go to my life? How does this improve, like, the, what I do in the work? Then we talk about how we utilize it for students. Because if we don't see value for ourselves, we don't want to teach it to our kids. So I think a lot of times what we do right away is we either talk about the positives and negatives and jump to, like, how do I use this in my classroom? And it's like, well, how can you utilize this in your classroom if you don't even know how to utilize this in your life? And so right. I think that that's part of it too, is having some patience with the process. Because even if you start using the classroom, but you've never used it in your life, you're not going to use it effectively. And you're going to maybe do the same essays that I was asked when I was a kid in the, in the 80s in high school, right? And then mm-hmm. you're like, oh, wow, they're, they've improved dramatically. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, these kids really picked up their writing the last month. It must be me. And so, so it is, you know, I think, and like, even, even like I have my own podcast and I do book reviews and Mm -hmm. I actually will say like, Hey, I read this book. Here's something I'm really interested in. And here's the review as I, as I took from ChatGPT. So I actually reference it and it's, it's, it's me modeling that. But then when I talk about my takeaways and you and I were talking about this before, there's a really human connection to my takeaways and the stories that I have that are connected to the book. ChatGPT couldn't do that because they don't understand my experiences and the things I do every day. But it was like, how do I make that connection between the two things? And so me actually saying out loud, I said, instead of doing like a super long, hey, write me um, a summary of this book, I'll say, hey, write a summary of this book in a five tweet thread. So even though I'm not going to tweet it, it just makes it really nice and concise so that I can share it easily with my listeners. And then I reference it. So, and I think that's something that we can do. Like, you know, at one point, Wikipedia, do not reference Wikipedia. And now it's kind of a normal thing. People don't really ask about it. And maybe some schools do, but mm-hmm. yeah, we have to like, a lot of times we're like, the conversation was, well, Wikipedia is not as accurate as, for example, a, a dictionary, right? right? Or sorry, an encyclopedia. And it's like, well, that's not necessarily true because an encyclopedia. So if you're talking about if it's accurate or not, time actually matters. Like what has changed and encyclopedia, once it's there, it's there, right? Whereas Wikipedia changed. Now we have to understand because Wikipedia is made by people, there is a bias with it. And so mm-hmm. you have to kind of look at that process too. But I think it's just kind of saying like, here's where I got this information from. And maybe here's, you know, but for me to be able to share that, I actually had to read the book and really kind of understand right. if it's actually accurate what it's saying. And, mm-hmm. and what it's, so I think part of it too is how do we use it as that second brain in our own world? How do we use it to improve our lives, improve our workflow? And then actually then talk about how would students see the impact of this? Because like as we're recording this and when this is released, it's going to get better. Like it's, it's only going, right. it's only going to get better from when we're, you know, who knows? We might be replaced by this conversation. I don't know. <laughs> I'm never, this is, this is always, and this is why I say like, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but what I do know, I'll be fine. I'll I'll figure it out. And that's, that's the mentality Mm -hmm. that we have to instill in our teachers and our staff and our kids is that whatever comes our way, do you know how to deal with it? 
that that's that's what really really matters and i think you know that's what scared a lot of people is when you know something like covid and we go remote they're like oh i'm not mm-hmm. i'm not used to this stuff and it's like I, I remember being really upset for like a day and i'm like well, hey i'm focused on innovation if i can't figure this out we're all in trouble so right. i just started doing some different things and what do you see as i guess common barriers that teachers either individually or schools as a whole find in in embracing that ability to adapt or embracing embracing this mindset of you know we can change like we can change with whatever it is that's changing around us what are the barriers that we see that kind of stop that or really halt that progress yeah like we i think it's a lot of times it's time right that that mm-hmm. is like and unfortunately time is often not our own and you look at, hey, we want people to explore this stuff. We want people to be cognizant. But a lot of times in education, there's administrators, there's um, uh, school district, you know, offices, just inundating people with time with stuff that people it doesn't necessarily matter. And mm-hmm. and it's just like, and I think part of it is we want people to be able to embrace new things and learn new ideas. But then we're just bombarded with initiatives and it's, it's that focus. Like if you, if I ask, let's say there's a hundred teachers from the same school district, you know, listening to this podcast right now. And I said, Hey, what are the top three initiatives that your school district is focused on? Would I actually get three answers or would I get 200 answers? Right. And, and then we're like, well, why won't people embrace change? It's because they're, they're just trying to, they're treading water right now because we're just so pushing stuff onto people. And then we have to mm-hmm. kind of pull back. Like, I, like literally before I, you know, jumped on this with you, uh, I was writing about kind of basically, it doesn't matter the decade you went into school. Like if you're listening to this, you went to school and I did in the eighties, or you might be listening mm-hmm. to this and you just graduated high school. I don't know. The the, yeah. the really interesting thing is the time frame of the school day is almost exactly the same no matter the decade. Mm-hmm. But the expectation on teachers just goes up and up and up. And so that's an unsustainable thing. So as an administrator, one of the things I just was writing about is that if you're saying we want to try this new initiative, you have to be very explicit and say, okay, what are we getting rid of? Like, what are we no longer having to do? Because it's just like we just add and add and add. But then there's no subtraction and that's unsustainable. So I think part of it is giving people time, but also how do we look at learning? Do we look at it as, you know, professional learning days? A lot of people are listening to this right now. It's, you know, you hear someone speak, you take that 10 minute break, you go to the next session and it's just like filling your head with information because we're like, oh, we have no time. And so we fill you with a bunch of information and then, and then people walk out of that and they're like, they can't even remember what they did 20 minutes earlier because they're just so overwhelmed. And we do the same things mm-hmm. with kids in high school, especially. And so one of the things I've been really pushing is saying like, Hey, you know, great. Let's share some information, but give people time to process, give people time to think, give people time to really actively reflect on what was just learned because yeah, you're not maybe putting as much information in their head, but you're actually getting better output from the information mm-hmm. shared. Right. So like even, even when people went to remote learning, I, I was very explicit that if you have an hour with a class and you spend 15 minutes building rapport, you will have 45 minutes of their attention. But if you only, if right. you're like, I only have an hour and then you share as much information as you can in the hour, but they didn't listen that whole time. 
I'd rather have 45 solid minutes than an hour of like waste of time. And so that that's mm-hmm. the same thing is that if you talk to people that went into education that uh, if you, they go to a conference and you say, what was the best part of the conference? Like 90% of the time, they'll say just having conversations in the hallway with my colleagues. That was like the best part. It's often why people go now. hundred percent. Right? And so, yeah. so explicitly when I go into professional learning days and I, I lead them or I'm asked to come in, I like explicitly make time for people to be able to have conversations in the hallway with their colleagues. And sometimes they have great conversations and sometimes mm-hmm. they just walk out of there and go for a walk outside because they just need to catch their breath. And I'm okay with either. And because like, I just like, I can't, I can't take anymore right now. Something else is going on in my life. I just need a, a second to myself and that's okay. I taught English and journalism and I think of how many PD days we would go in other people in my right. department and we would come in with a stack of essays and that's what we were going to be doing and right. PD grading essays right. at the back of, I mean, that's what we did. And, and, um, there was never any, further expectation. I'm sure. I'm, and it wasn't just people that had essays to grade. There were people grading right. math exam. Like everyone was doing something. Very few people were a hundred percent paying attention, but there was never any further expectation placed on us that what we were, mm-hmm. you know, the room we were entering for that hour or two was, was more important than the work we had to do for our job, for our daily right. job. Right. Like right. it was just, the idea was, you have to show up at this at this room at four o'clock and right. we check the box off that you were here and there's nothing really there's there's nothing transformational about the experience existing in itself. Um and so everyone from the top down is just checking off that it happened. Right. So there's a huge difference between you being there and you being present. And I think yes. that that was a really important aspect. And so like that that what you just said, I knew this and when I was a principal uh, for mm-hmm. example, we, we moved to portfolios for our students. So we had all of our students have their own portfolios, but part of the process was I wanted all my teachers to have their own portfolios as well. So mm-hmm. as, as I was saying earlier, there were certain things that were expected of evaluation of teachers prior. And I said, okay, we're moving to portfolios for our students. I want everyone on our staff to have this. Here are things that we will no longer do. So I like, I listed, Hey, this is how we've typically done evaluations. This is no longer needed. We're moving these portfolios. So the, the teachers had time to like actively write their reflections on the stuff that they're doing. So, so basically I remember one day specifically, we brought people in, we showed them the like nuts and bolts of how to put things together. And I think it was around 10 AM. This is a full day professional learning day that I'm, I'm, I'm leading with my staff. So, Hey, it's 10 AM. Um, what I need you to do, I need you to write something and talk about something you're doing in your classroom and you're going to write it in your portfolio. So you can actually go through this process. So whether you do that um, here, whether you do that at Starbucks, whether you do that wherever, you just got to do it. And at two mm-hmm. o'clock, we're going to meet, we're all going to meet and we're going to read each other's. And so you can go for lunch right now. And what was interesting, some people are like, I can't eat until this is done. And some people <laughs> are like, I can't get this done until I eat. Right. And that so would have been me. I would want to do it and then go out. Right. <laughs> and you just want, because you, you don't want it sitting yeah. on your head. And I'm, I'm the same way. Like, I feel like, I feel like sometimes I have to do stuff to like get the reward, right? Like it's my, I have mm-hmm. to check the box where some people are like, I cannot focus until I like get, you know, eat something. And so everyone was doing in a different way. And then, it, but the accountability was at 2 p.m. We're going to read each other's. So you had to get it done, right? Mm-hmm. So, so then they all started reading each other's and it was like kind of like a, they got to see into each other's classrooms in a totally different way. But then they went through the process 
And then they started saying, this is really interesting. Like, I love, I love this process. Like, how can we do this as our kids? Which was the point was like, how do you move this to how we do things in our classroom? So I remember I got some pushback from my superintendent because I was basically saying like, Hey, I trust you go wherever you need to go. Some of them are going for lunch at 10 a.m. Some of them were going at 1 p.m. They're all over the place. And I, and I had the exact same conversation we're having right now. I said, you actually have other schools right now who are just having their people from nine to 12, one hour lunch, coming back one to mm-hmm. three. You have no evidence of their learning. None. You just know they were there. Whereas actually, you want to see what my teachers learn? Read their stuff. Here you go. Yeah. And so you, so like, so kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, I got people to actually immerse themselves in the practice, but I gave them time mm-hmm. to do it. And I, I'm a big advocate that if you don't give time to people to do things, then the things aren't important. You have to provide that. If you, as soon as you say it's after school on your own time, you're, that's also, you might as well say it's not important. And to be honest, it feels like, I mean, even from the beginning of you describing that day, that process, it just sounds like you're treating people like responsible professionals Right, is right. really what you're doing. You're not, you're not saying, Hey, I, I don't trust you. I need you to be here for these hours and don't leave this room. And I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of mental, like psychological levels there that things that are going on. And I think that that, that works wonders, even just giving those instructions to people, you know, it changes the mindset. Well, the other thing too is like, as we were talking about this and you and I are having this conversation, the way I structured that, that is innovation. It's me saying, mm. I have this PD day that the district is saying we have to have. Right. How do I actually make the best use of this time? How can I do this? Do I have to just do it the way it's always been done? Or can I do it in a way that I feel is going to be better for my staff? My staff are going to be more responsive to, and then I'll have actual evidence of learning. Like if you think about this, my staff got way more out of those days because I subtly said, we're going to read each other's at two, mm-hmm. right? And now I was like, oh, now I can actually do something. And I got to actually like process. Whereas you could just sit there and listen and do nothing. Like you mm-hmm. literally can just look at me, but I gave you the time. So you really don't have the excuse, but now, you know. And they also then know that you think that what they are doing and thinking is important. Absolutely. Whereas if you right. didn't ask them to do that, you're just giving them information and not involving them in the process and not asking them what's going on in their lives. Totally. And so the the interesting thing is, uh, I talk about like, I know collaborations, like a big conversation education has been forever. And I don't like it on its own. I'm a big, I'm a competitive person. I want to do really, really well. And part of it was when I was principal, I wanted my school to be the best school. Um, And now I was not going to like keep our secrets and crush other people, things like that. Right. But there, there, we wanted to make sure like, Hey, I want to be the best school possible. And if you want to come learn from us, I'm willing to do this, but I'm not holding our school back based on what other schools are doing. And mm, so that's interesting. So I've always focused on this notion of competitive collaboration, right? That I want to make sure that we're doing the best we possibly can, but will we help the people across the hall? And so I tapped into that with the teachers because all of them are thinking like, Oh, I don't want to like have a bad one. Right. Because I know other people are going to be looking at this. So they all raise their game, but they also knew they could go to each other for support in that process. And that's the environment is where you have both that push and support, not just one or the other. Yeah. You're thinking about it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it sounds like you're thinking about it in terms of always wanting, needing to be the best for for yourself. What What is the best that we can do or I can do or you can do? Not necessarily we need to be better than everybody across the hall. 
But if we're our best, then the people across the hall are going to raise their expectations a little bit. Yeah. And like, yes and no. I want to be the best at something. The feeling. Yeah. I want to be the best at something. But I, but I yeah. also, it's understanding the person across the hallway is probably better at something than I am. And so can we exactly. actually build that stuff together? Right. And, and like, there's a, there's a kind of a joke that I say, but it also has some truth to it. I'll say to like, I'll, I'll work with a group. I'll like, Hey, who wants to be the weakest person in this room? Cause I talk about this concept and everyone's like, well, I don't, nobody wants to be the weakest. And I say, well, okay, that's awesome. Nobody wants to be the weakest. Here's, here's the deal. One of you is. <laughs> and, and I'm like, and then, you know, they all start kind of smiling and they're like, is it me? Like, am I the person that's the weakest? Right. And yeah, nobody, nobody wants to be the weakest link mm-hmm. in an organization in a school or thing like that. And you kind of want to tap into that. You want to kind of just push people to do this because like when you over support people, nobody really cares if they're growing, you know, as much like, but like I said, that competitive, like having them work in tandem is really important. Not, not one or the other, not like, cause when I, when I entered education, one of the concerns that was shared by veteran teachers is like, well, hopefully you don't get a teacher that says I've been working on this for 30 years. I'm not just handing my stuff over to some newcomer. Right. Right. And I actually feel that's not really a thing anymore. I I started my very first year. I had a teacher 20 plus years. The very first thing she said to me, I've been teaching for a long time. I got a bunch of stuff, whatever you need, feel free to grab it. And it just maybe set the tone for me is like, Hey, Mm. there's a ton of stuff I can learn from her. And she's willingly giving this to me. And now you're seeing people all over the world share their stuff openly, encouraging people to utilize it in a way that makes sense for not just not don't just do it exactly what I did. Because I, I don't know your kids. You have to modify it to the people you serve in front of you. So like you, I know you're in California now. The solutions mm-hmm. that you use when you're a teacher in New York to what you might be using in a classroom in California might be different. I don't know. Definitely. Right? But you should know your kids. Yeah. And you just even recalling that experience is bringing back memories from I taught for 14, almost 15 years. And I just remember a couple of things of being a newcomer and having there was like a clear line between you knew the people that were going to open their doors and their filing cabinets to you and people who were the opposite. And they weren't necessarily people that were there for 30 years and were just kind of doing their own thing and leave it. They they were sometimes young people as well that just felt like they're doing all the hard work and they shouldn't have to they shouldn't have to give it to other people. And I do remember both of those types and not understanding where it came from. And then years later, when I had student teachers myself and kind of became known for like my own brand of stuff that I was creating consistently, I would have new people tell me, I can't believe you're so willing to give me this binder. And I think that might, it might come with a certain level of confidence in you know, believing in what it is that you're doing is something that is changing or transforming in a way what you're doing in your classroom. And you just want that experience to be, to be out there. Like if this, if this helps you do something similar across the hall, then please, please take it and try it. Yeah. I I think it's also like, like people have a better understanding of how you holding onto your stuff and not helping people actually hurts your organization. If we're teachers, we want to help kids. And you're saying, I'm not going to share my stuff with you. You ultimately know you're hurting kids. Like when, when you're talking about this and you're sharing this, I, I'm like, I'm wondering how generational this is. And here, here's what I mean by that. I know you're from the New York area. I don't know how much yeah. football, the Jets, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so Aaron Rodgers, 
there I'm a I'm a Chicago Bear. I'm like I'm Canadian, so I have like weird teams. I'm a big You've got Bears a lot going on fan. Chicago, New York. I'm, I'm an Islanders fan, Lakers fan, uh, you know, like just all over I the place. I see you with Yankees hats on and everywhere. Your, um... everywhere. <laughs> right. So so Aaron Rodgers, so the the Green Bay Packers basically have had two amazing quarterbacks over the last 30 years. And the first one is Brett Favre, who's considered one of the best quarterbacks ever, right? And mm-hmm. Brett Favre was at the end of his time with the Green Bay Packers. Aaron Rodgers was on the team. And and it is known that Brett Favre, like, basically wanted nothing to do with Aaron Rodgers. He wouldn't help him because there is like, I don't want you taking my spot. And, like, it, it just wasn't a good relationship. And I think, and then Aaron Rodgers just left the Packers. And... The, the guy who's his replacement, Jordan Love, is already doing way better because Aaron Rodgers is very explicit. I don't want to be treated the same way I was treated when I was in that same position, right? He could have easily mm-hmm. said, I'm not going to help you. Like, I don't want, but he, and, you know, that current quarterback is, is much better off because of, um, uh, Aaron Rodgers, you know, willingness to share, to, to help him out through that process. And basically, when he left that organization, I don't feel there's as much resentment as there was. And maybe this is, you know, I'm biased of my time or whatever, just you know, recency bias. Maybe I feel that people are really mad at Brett Favre because they felt they left, he left the organization in tatters. Whereas when Aaron Rodgers left, people are like, okay, well, he did mentor this person to put him in a situation. Mm-hmm. And, and it is, you know, I think that's like when you're talking, that's the first thing that kind of pops in my mind is, the difference between the two approaches there and how one actually leads to the long-term success of an organization and one actually can harm it. Right. That actually is a good transition, transitional story, I guess, to how I wanted to finish this conversation, which is thinking about how all of this stuff really is applied to leadership in a school organization and how I get this question a lot. I've been talking to a lot of principals lately who are really looking for, they feel like there isn't appropriate guidance right now for leaders specifically in how to help their teachers navigate this crazy time of rapid growth and rapid change and needing to, like we, we like to say around the optimalist and swivel these days that we were now in a time where it's very different from thinking about when the internet was new, when diff- when cell phones were new, when smartphones were new, because you could in some ways, and some people are still doing this, ignore some of the technology and right. get by. And now we're at a time where you literally cannot ignore the change anymore. The change that's happening now will have to be embraced in some way and you will have to adapt with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, I'm hearing a lot of that from principals like who don't even know each other are repeating those same statements to uh-huh. me. Like, we're looking for the people that are here to lead us through how to lead others through this change because it's not the same as it was uh, as what we would have done before. Um, and so I'm looking, I'm looking to see if you have any, any ways that you're thinking about or, or advice that you might give to school leaders in helping, in helping teachers navigate how to, how to embrace adaptability. Well, I, I think it's kind of going back to the what we were talking about earlier is how we utilize our time, right? So, yes. like I was thinking, and I won't say where it was, but it was, uh, I remember walking to school district and working with their leadership team and knowing they are a one-to-one, 
Like every kid has a, a Chromebook computer that they have access to all the time. And the big conversation was that they're having a really hard time with their teachers being okay with it. And I was looking at the room. I said, well, I notice none of you have laptops, Chromebooks, nothing. You're all writing pen and paper. And they're like, well, we don't really use that stuff because we think it's not appropriate to be on our devices when someone's here to work with us. And I'm like, so then, so basically you're saying you, you are what you're complaining your teachers are. Cause like, mm -hmm. so like, why wouldn't your teachers use the same argument? Well, we don't think our kids should be on these devices, you know, during this time because, right. it's, cause you're saying basically it's disrespectful to be on these devices. So now like, are you actually asking your teachers to teach in a way that's very different than how you're leading your time specifically. And I think part of it too is when you look at education, we have this mentality and it's been forever that once all the new teachers enter the profession, that everything will change significantly because they grew up with this stuff. They're very comfortable with it. So everything will change, but that's never happened. And I, I would argue it's never happened because we are, we often teach the way we experience school. And I'll give you an example. So I'm from Canada. You're, you know, New York, living in California. Have you ever heard, or maybe you've said this, uh, the bell doesn't dismiss you. I dismiss you. <laughs> right, you knew what I was going to, oh, you, yeah. you knew that. Oh, I know exactly. The second After part. two words, I knew exactly. So, so how, do, how do we both live in two different, like we're in two different countries. Yeah, And I said something and you could have finished that sentence. Like you mm -hmm. knew it, right? Well, some teacher said it to you and you might've said it to some of your students. So it shows you how basically traditions in education are passed down year after year after year after year. So like you went, you grew up with totally different stuff than the teachers before you, yet you're saying some of the same things. And so part of it too is when we look at education, when we look at the experience that our, that the educators have when we're learning together, how do we actually change the experience so we don't just tell them what learning should look like, but they actually experience something different? Like even just giving you the example of how I said to my staff, like, hey, go out and blog, right? Go out and do this. You got to go write. You got to utilize this stuff. And it got them ha having the conversation about how they utilize these things. And like you, you think about in education, there's a lot of conversation about parents and caregiver communities that's happening in education, I think it's really good conversation. I think it's really important. And the mentality for many is, oh, parents don't want anything new in education because um, they're, they're so stuck in their ways. And as a parent myself, I know that is a false statement. And it's, right. it's, a, it's, it's a cop out. And the reality of it is parents don't want what was done to them in school. Parents want what's best for their child. That's, I truly believe that. Mm -hmm. and like I, I would make that assumption about any parent, but if they know no other experience than the experience they had when they were Makes kids and they just think it's, they just default that that's the best because mm. I, I turned out okay. Like why would my kid? Right. That's think? the statement. Yeah. So, so then, so one of the things we did when I mentioned the portfolio thing, we actually brought parents in to my, um, to my school and we said, Hey, we're going to be doing these portfolios with your kids. So what we're going to do tonight, we're going to teach you how to do them and we're going to actually teach you and we're going to get you to make your own and go through the process. And so I didn't just say we're doing this. I'm like, hey, you're doing this so you can have a better understanding how to guide your kids. And here, here's what that, you know, the statement I just made about parents want what's best for their kids. They just don't know anything different. 
that was when I, I really kind of opened that because I wasn't in, like, I, I would love to say I was so intentional with my thinking and that process, but I was just like, Hey, you know, they're kind of freaked out about this. So I'm going to, I'm going to teach them. I'm going to teach them how to use this. So one of the things I noticed that parents laughed at the end, like, this is so much better than when I was a kid. And, and that, that, that was it. That was, and it was like, there was no sell. There was no sell to make because they're like, yeah, I want it. So they never fought me on it. They never argued with it because they went mm-hmm. through the experience. They're like, oh yeah, this is way better. This is so much better. I wish I had this when I was a kid. And then, and then they're, then they're so behind it. And if, if you can't actually bring parents in and, and actually experience the new things you're doing in the classroom, then you're, you're just going to fight all the time. Right. And if you're worried about what parents will think mm-hmm. when you teach them these new things, then maybe you shouldn't be doing them. Right. Like, I think that is an important conversation. So we like parents want what's best for their kids. Do you give them that experience? Do you give them that opportunity to do this? And it's not like we had to do it with every one of our parents. It's not like we had to invite every parent one at a time in our community, have them make a portfolio and have everyone agree this is better. But when we, we invited and made it open, those parents then became the advocates for the new things we were doing, you know, because, you know, I know you taught your principal could have been amazing, but you listen to other teachers when you taught, right? That that's who has mm-hmm. credibility. Principals, listen oh, to other yeah. principals, parents, listen to other parents. So we said, let's, let's help this. Let's help some of these parents become our biggest advocates because once they go out and say, it's awesome, then we're, we're golden. And that that's that I think that's part of it too, is, you know, kind of going back, you know, to your original question, what is the experience people are having? And then, you know, part of what I do is I try to make, help people not just experience that, but then say, okay, now that we did this today, how could you do this in the classroom? Cause then, cause sometimes you, you have to make that statement, right? I don't know if you're familiar. Uh, Ed camp was done for years and I was a huge thing in education. Mm-hmm. I never really saw a trickle in the classroom and I saw educators going, Oh, this is so amazing. I love PD this way. It's so awesome. But how come yeah. we didn't see it all over in schools? And sometimes you have to say, okay, if you loved it, how can you use the things that you experienced here today and actually make that a reality in your classroom with your students? And that right there is innovation. There you go. That's it. <laughs> what a perfect way to end. Yeah, there you go. That is a perfect <laughs> way. That, that is, right? Because then you're creating a better experience, right? You're taking what you yeah. know, creating a new and better experience. I love it. And, and what I just said with EdCamp, no technology involved at all. None. Exactly. I mean, that is, that's how I think about it too. T- yeah. Mapping something that is new to you and is transforming the way you're experiencing something and mapping it into the work that you do. I'm, I'm really curious because like, I feel, I feel like your thinking on innovation has changed over this conversation. I, I don't know that I was thinking about it so differently, but I don't know that I ever verbalized right, it. That you say it, but like, and that, that's that. So that is literally yeah. why I wrote the innovator's mindset. Because I, I'm like a big, my big focus is on innovation, but then you hear people saying, oh, it's a buzzword. How things become mm-hmm. buzzwords is when we say them without actually explicitly having an understanding of what those words mean. So you see this all right. the time in education. We say the word and people are like, you're just saying the word, right? It's like the, the meme. I don't think you, I don't think you're, that means what you think it means, right? Like it's uh, mm-hmm. the, the princess bride meme. Yes. 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 And, yes. and that, and so <laughs> that, that was like, I didn't want this word. And it is still to many a buzzword because people say it without explicitly saying this is what it means. And here's examples of what it looks like. We have this parrot problem in education. We just say the things, we just say the things over and over and over again, but we don't, you know, a, a parent says a thing, but doesn't actually understand what they're saying. 
And I think that that is it's not just repeating, it's actually repeating without understanding. And so that's why it's very important to say, okay, hey, we're, we keep talking about innovation, what does this mean? And actually clearly articulating it and then giving the examples. And I thought that was really interesting to kind of see like, yeah, that was cool. And also, I, just to kind of finish where the thought of what you're saying, it's making me think back to what you were saying earlier about there being just so much stuff that are right. that's constantly being introduced initiatives and so forth. Like sometimes it just becomes easy to parrot those big concepts where if we pared down what we were doing and only had the concepts, like maybe then we become right. experts at those things. And, and if, you know, if innovation or creativity or curiosity or anything was just, those were the focus and they, the, the actual meaning of them were, were part of our in and out of every day. And we're not thinking about all this other stuff. Right. I don't know. There's just so much, so much that, that that kind of thing makes me think about like, what could, what could be changed and how do we, I'm always thinking like, what does it take to make not just 20 schools do this one thing, but, but everybody, like how, right. how do you get everybody on board? And so that's why I've been, I brought up the leaders and, you know, building principles and stuff, because that's, that's kind of my, my pivot recently has been talking to more and more leaders because often I get, I'll get a lot of educators, right. school psychologists, everybody that wants to kind of talk to me about this stuff. But as soon as I start, stepped out of that and started bringing building leaders in, the world is kind of opening up here because they're kind of lost in this and they don't know how to get, how to get their teachers really on board. And I found that to be kind of fascinating. If I, if I hear a word repeated by an administrator like several times over, I'll stop and say, Hey, what do you mean by that? Tell me, explain that word to me. And I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of times they're like, uh, and they, they, they haven't really thought about it. They just, yeah, they just say it. And then that's what, that's what causes confusion and burnout is that, am I doing mm -hmm. the thing that they're saying? Like, I, am I like, am I being this person? Right. Like even, even when we were talking earlier about innovation, it was that, that question of like, how am I already being innovative to when you see that you're already doing the thing and like now it's, now it's easier to do it because you're like, Oh, I, I already do that. So you see yourself as part of the solution, right? Where you're like, am I right. meeting this too? So I think, you know, as you're having these conversations, like that's a challenge I'll give to you is like, if you hear someone saying over and over again, just stop and say, what do you mean by that? Like explain that word to me, what it means, what it looks exactly. like. Yeah, Cause I think that, Definitely. that that's what is causing a lot of these issues. We just say the words and don't actually, and people have totally different definitions of things. And yeah. we, we don't know if we're on the right track. I know. Can we just get up on one with one megaphone that reaches every school in the country at once? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, right. how do we get everybody? Oh, it's so fr it's frustrating, but it's also the challenge that yeah. makes us keep yeah. keep doing this. So uh, the very last thing I'm going to just ask you before we stop recording is I like to, well, two things. Yes. First one is, is there anything that you have been reading or listening to or watching lately that you would, that kind of has been, um, it could be influential in, in a way, but it could be totally the opposite of influential and just be something that is uh, something that is going into your brain that you want to give people a fuller picture of who you are. You know, there's, there's two, there's two books that I'll mention. Uh, one of them is unreasonable hospitality by Will Gadara. Uh, I don't know if you've read that is probably one of my favorite mm -mm. books ever. And I might have a bias to it because it's interesting. We were talking about how I am competitive. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of ruin the, the beginning of it. It is a nonfiction book, but basically it's this guy who runs a restaurant, Will Gadara, and uh, he wants to be the best restaurant in the world. And the starting of the book is 
he actually is at a ceremony in New York where they're recognizing the top 50 restaurants in the world, like in the entire world. And it's like a huge deal. He's so excited. He's never been to it. And then they actually start the ceremony and then say, okay, at number 50, and they name his restaurant. And he's like, what? And he's mad, <laughs> like upset that he's only number 50 of the top 50 restaurants in the world. And so basically the whole, so that is like, you know, I'm a little bit like that guy. Like I want to be a little like, no, if I'm there, I want to be number one. Right. So we want to get, right. so it was kind of interesting. So I was like hooked immediately when I started reading that and really um, I, like the bias I have, it's about really how we work in the restaurant industry, all this stuff, but there's so many lessons. And I grew up as a, you know, my parents are immigrants to Canada, had a restaurant forever. And a lot of the lessons that I talk about, or lessons I picked up from my parents in a restaurant. And so I would say for any leader, even any classroom, some of the lessons in that book um, are so powerful towards education, how we kind of go above and beyond what the expectations are. And that creates a really um, amazing experience. Uh, the other book I'm reading right now is called The 48 Laws of Power. And I love it because it is, I'm like deciding, is this an evil book? <laughs> or is this like just a, is this just a factual book? And it's, it's just a really interesting and, and some of the stuff that you, you, you read in it, like they're talking, like one of the laws of power is basically like never make the person above you look bad. And, and like they don't say that exactly, but, um, sometimes when I work with principals, assistant superintendents, one of the things they talk about is, like our my superintendent has such an ego, I can't do anything, and I'll say to them, you basically want to give that person credit because then you feed their ego, and then as long as they feel they're getting credit, exactly. you can kind of do whatever you want. They'll let you go. So if you want the credit, that might be an issue. But if you want to do what you want, feed their ego. And so I'm like reading that, like, I, and then it's like one of the laws of power. I'm like, yeah. So so it's just a kind of an interesting book, but then it's also like. Then it has on the other side, you need to like crush your enemies so they'll never come back. I'm like, oh, this is a little. <laughs> so it's like an interesting, you know, it's like every time I read it, I'm like, oh, like what's going on here? Like, I don't, is that, like, are you trying to get people to become evil or are you just saying right. what the laws are? So it's just a, it's just a weird, I, I, and I, I love books that, I love books that I don't want books just reaffirming what I think, but making me think. I agree. Right. So I was just going to say, even if it's something like you're saying, that's totally outside of what the way you would normally yeah. think, just experiencing your own reaction to that is, <laughs> is I think worth it. I mean, I, I'm relating to this as a sentiment as you're talking about. Oh, yeah. yeah. I totally get that. And I can only read one law at a time. Cause I'm like, Oh my God. Like I feel horrible. That, that. <laughs> it's just, it's a lot. Right. So it's, yeah. it's interesting. I, and I love that. I find books I don't necessarily agree with probably the most interesting. Yeah, I agree. Okay. And the very last thing I will ask is for you to just let people know where they can find you and where you can, uh, where they can follow you and, and anything new that you're involved in or working on that you want people to know about. Yeah. So, um, you can find me at georgecaros.ca at gcaros basically everywhere. Um, and so if you Google me, you'll find me everywhere. <laughs> uh, what I hope. And one of the big things I work with students is how when you Google them, do you find good stuff? And, uh, I try to really model that. The, I'm actually right before uh, I spoke to you and right after I'm working on a book that I'm doing with Allison Apsey and it's actually called What Makes a Great okay. Principal. And right. we actually identified five domains that are really important to uh, principals. 
and it's very specifically geared towards principles. Um, and it's, it's interesting and in it's maybe a very different concept of the book. Actually, this is the first time I've ever talked about it. So this is like, this is like breaking news to you. Fresh, fresh news, yeah. folks. <laughs> so what's interesting about the book is we identify these five domains and then we are both prince. We were both principles. So we share, you know, some of our experiences, but most of it is we talk about great principles that we had. And for each one of the domains, we actually have at least, um, two teachers or like a teacher and a student share a story about a great principle they had and a strategy that fits the domain. So a lot of times when you hear these leadership books, it's kind of people in central office saying, here's what makes a great principle. It's kind of people working at universities saying, here's, I study great principles, here's what they do. So what's different is we're saying, well, shouldn't you ask the people you served and they're telling the stories. So they're saying, here's mm-hmm. what my great principle did. And, and I think that's, that's what makes it really oh, that's interesting. So yeah, I told you it's yeah. like an interesting concept. And like one of the things that I always share with teachers is a question you need to consider is, would you want to be a student in your own classroom? Like, would you want to experience what you're actually doing? Exactly. And so the same is true with principles. Like what I, are you doing what the principal before you did? Or are you actually being the principal you wanted when you were a teacher? And that's, that's mm-hmm. the whole premise of the book. So we identify that great. Yeah. Like it's, it's really, it's like a interesting concept. And I, I just think, um, we always say we want to hear from the people we serve. And so if you don't buy the book, you must mm-hmm. hate teachers. So <laughs> <laughs> I hope this episode inspired you to reflect a bit more deeply on how you're adapting to the new world of work and life alongside AI that we are all finding ourselves in all of a sudden out of nowhere. And to also think about your own relationship to innovation as transformation. You can let us know what you're thinking by leaving a comment on Substack at any time if you're a subscriber. You can also leave a review in Apple Podcasts and you can reach me on Twitter at S Candela with one L nine. The hashtag optimalist can be used when posting answers to questions we ask here and I'll be sure to see it. You also don't have to use the hashtag, but it is pretty cool to see them all traced back to the same show. I can also additionally be reached at sarah at getengageable.com. You can listen and subscribe to the Optimalist podcast wherever you love listening to great podcasts and new episodes are released every Wednesday. Links to all of the resources mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes. The Optimalist podcast is brought to you by Engageable, the only app that gives you the mindful pause or pulse you need for doing better. And it's free. Create an account today at getengageable.com or by downloading Engageable on any iOS or Android device. You can also follow us at Get Engageable on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to The Optimalist, and I'll be back next week with a new, exciting, innovative conversation. Stay engaged.